right, it's going to be a fun one. Let's do it. It's Friday, episode 88. Let's make this a fun one. But I will say this. I don't like Zoom. I don't like it. I'm done with it. At first, it was interesting. It was novel. Oh, look what we can do with Zoom. But now, no thanks. I actually have a physical response to Zoom. I don't know why, but my ears start throbbing. Anybody else? Just my weak vestibular system? My ears start throbbing and throbbing and throbbing. And this is all I do professionally. In the world of education right now as a teacher, this is it. Screen time. There's no other way to do this job except stare into a screen with a bunch of boxes and a bunch of faces or a bunch of names and a bunch of muted or unmuted students. And are we really interacting? I don't know. Are they tuning me out? Sure, sure, probably. Some are interested. Some are still engaged. You know, I could be negative right now and say, oh, they're all so down in the dumps and depressed. But I will say there's probably a few students who like this, who are excelling this way. They're getting a lot of sleep, enough time for video games. Perhaps the classroom experience gave them so much anxiety that now they're comfortable and at ease. I feel like I've been pitying these students for so long, which I should because a lot of their experiences have been totally ruined with this pandemic. But just for a moment, I think it's time to focus on the students who are fucking loving this. There are a few who are just really thankful that they're getting this finished to the school year. And maybe this is how next year begins as well. I don't know. I always like to dangle a carrot in front of me and say, oh, in August, we all go back to the classroom. But now we're being told, no, it's not going to be a normal classroom experience. So don't get too excited for that, Bob. I don't know, though. The screen time's unhealthy. I got Google Classroom on my computer. I have a Google Classroom app. I'm constantly checking my Gmail because that's how I say students can reach me. Email me anytime. We'll Zoom anytime. We'll chat anytime. Message board anytime. Comment section anytime, anytime, anytime. I say it and I mean it. I am in touch with all of them that want to be in touch. But at about 2.33 p.m., I just feel like this residue come over me. I got blurry vision and ear pain. Anybody else? I don't think I would have signed up for this. If this is what teaching was, if this is truly just what the profession looked like, I don't think I would sign up. I don't think this would be my field. It has made me realize that I truly enjoy those four walls, those 34 desks, that dry erase board, that room, that stimulating magical fantasy world which I guarantee it's going to feel like when we get back, there's going to be some people that truly appreciate that. She it for a few days, at least I'll bet you teachers are complaining like me, like too much screen time. You know, I wish I missed the classroom, but as I said, some kids are okay with this. I also think some kids are okay with the screen time because they're already living that way. I think they're conditioned physically conditioned for their eyes to just stare into that glow. And that's how they interact. Really, they're posting stories, clicking like, looking at the TikToks. You know what they're doing. So outside of the schoolwork, they're still looking at screens. They're still playing video games. They're still tapping the apps. And on the young adult scene, they're still internet dating. You know, I was starting to wonder, are people lonely right now? If you're single right now and you live alone in an apartment, are you lonely? And then I realized some people are so used to interacting through screens that it's probably no different. And think about all the people right now, internet dating, just emailing back and forth with potential mates, emailing back and forth with potential mates. I mean, sure, there's no, do you want to grab coffee tomorrow? 
But I bet some people are falling in love right now. I'll bet the amount of emails being exchanged right now on all the dating sites is at a high level. People are replying quickly, quickly. There's no reason not to reply. You realize everybody's receiving your texts right now? Everybody. Everybody's phone is on them right now. Everybody's checking their inbox all throughout the day. There's no like, oh, it's the end of the work day. It's 5 p.m. I guess I won't be checking my email. No, everybody is so in touch right now, electronically, virtually, that some people are probably having success meeting other people right now. Have that online relationship. Get hot and heavy. Get busy with that cyber intimacy. Go ahead now. Don't be lonely anymore. This must be a really good time for internet dating. I'm guessing. This is all just a guess. This is the chase. This is the fun part. If you're single and you have married friends and you tell them about your internet dating, they love it. It's like the number one topic married people want to hear about. They always react the same way. Seriously, a lot of married people react the same way. They go, well, if I was single, (laughs) boy, would I enjoy that. When I was single, see, I did internet dating. And when I was single, I had a lot of married friends. And I'd tell them about it. They fucking loved it. They loved all of my stories. Give me more. It was like this escape. Not to say all these married couples are just tired of one another. Some are. Some are certainly tired of one another right now. Oh, my God. There have been a few reports that divorce attorneys are working overtime these days. Let's just say that's a lot of time together for some couples. Being honest, though, right now, I'm not trying to brag. I'm not experiencing that. I'm good with it. I'm good with the family time. Genuinely good with the wife time. But when I read about how there are some couples out there right now that are like, you know what? I kind of liked being away from you most of the day and then coming back for dinner. Now there's none of that. You just go to another room of your home. I mean, some people, some jobs, you still leave your house right now. Some, but most, you're indoors with your spouse way more than you ever intended to be. Maybe it'll bring you closer. Maybe there's those positives. Like we really discovered a new bond. Our love deepened during the pandemic. And then there's the couples that are just Googling divorce attorneys. Like, get me the fuck out. This is damaged beyond repair. Hook up that eHarmony profile, that Match.com profile. Tinder swipe, Tinder swipe. That's what's happening right now. That's what's going on. There's going to be a lot of people during this shelter in place that have that story. Hey, how'd you meet your husband? How'd you meet your wife? Well, uh... I was glued to my screen and feeling lonely. So we had cyber dates, cyber dates. And then the first time we met, uh, (laughs) he popped the question. We were engaged. Well, that's a pretty good script right there. Anybody who has done internet dating has good stories about the disaster dates. Even the ones that aren't disasters, but they're just pretty bad are good stories for married couples to go, "Uh uh-huh, tell me more. And then, and then, God, if that existed when I was single, I would have done. They all say that. They all say that. So what, you just meet a stranger at a wine bar and then, and then what? Well, and then you have small talk before realizing within the first few minutes that this isn't going to work or having that flutter feeling in the heart. Is this love? Is this love? Is this love? Is this love that Bob Marley was feeling? Lord of mercy. Ayo, yo, yo. I've had Bob on loop lately. You kidding me? Who's dominated a genre more than Bob Marley? If I say, are you a reggae fan? Your answer has to be yes, because you like Bob Marley. I've never met somebody that doesn't like Bob Marley. If you don't like Bob Marley, we're not friends. 
That's my criteria. I mean, you could say I don't listen to Bob Marley, but if you outwardly don't like him, like you listen to all of his music and you go, hmm, I just couldn't connect, didn't enjoy that sound, then we're not friends. It's okay. It's okay if you say I don't actively listen to Bob Marley, but I've heard his songs and they're pretty good. Then we could be friends. We could be friends. But if you have ears connected to your head and you've heard Bob's music and your response is, this is total dog shit and I don't support it, we're not buddies anymore, okay? I'm reducing my friend list today. Actually, you know who else has dominated their musical genre? Perhaps just as much as Bob. You can't say that in rap. Nobody's dominated rap. There have been great rappers. You can't say that in rock and roll or jazz or blues or country just because there's so many stars that have been so prolific. But if I say reggae, who's your favorite reggae musician of all time? It's Bob fucking Marley. What are you talking about? Don't try to be cute. Don't try to say, yeah, I've always really leaned toward Peter Tosh. I'm more of a Jimmy Cliff guy. No, you're, you're a Bob Marley fan. If you like reggae, he's your favorite. Come on. Come on now. Well, for me, it's always been Steel Pulse and then Bob Marley, a distant second. Shut the fuck up. It's Bob. Oh, but I was saying, think about this name. And this is a name I actually didn't know when I was younger. For some reason, his music was not played in my home. But Rafi, do you know who Rafi is? If you're listening, if you're a parent of a young one right now, you know Rafi's music. Baby Beluga, Banana Phone, and he does all the hits. Twinkle Little Star. Or Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. What's the official name of that song? Wheels on the Bus. Old MacDonald. But the Rafi Originals? Who else is dominating children's music at his level? Seriously. I googled him a while ago. He's from Canada, but he's Egyptian. So maybe he's born in Egypt, but grew up in Canada. Okay, I don't remember much of what I read. However, what's his net worth got to be? Think about all the kids in car seats demanding Rafi. Give me that Rafi action. Just loving his sound. And guess what? I can speak for some of the parents. I don't hate it. I think I hate 84% of children's music. It's so bad. Some of the lyrics so senseless. And I listen to the songs so many times. But Rafi's okay. Rafi even has one song that I would listen to without my daughter in the room. You want to hear that? All right, I'm picking up my phone right now. I'm doing this. Didn't even plan for it. And maybe this is the part of the podcast where you're like, you know, I'm good. Eh, I was not really tuning in to hear Rafi. But what about this, especially during the quarantine? Let that trumpet get in your soul, okay? This is a hot intro. That was either the lamest moment in my podcast history or one of the most special ones. It's one of the rare songs that I could listen to with a two-year-old and we're both feeling it. We're both just feeling it. Rafi, one light, one sun. He doesn't even have the greatest voice, but it's good enough, right? No one's in his category. Nobody else in the world of children's music is up there. Now, you could say Sesame Street music, but that's more of a show, right? I know Elmo's got some songs, but what am I talking about? All right, I got to drop this. I got to drop this. Back to the adults. I'm not going to talk about COVID-19 a lot 
I don't want to. But I have had this realization. We can only process so much of it, realizing how powerless we are to all of it before our minds go to something that we can at least grasp, like control the thoughts of. So if you tell me a governor has mandated that I have to stay at home, that's it. There's no conversation. There's really no reaction. I go, oh, bummer. And then that's it. You tell me about a vaccine being 12 months away. I don't really like dispute that or refute that. I now don't give my opinion. Well, I think it's seven to eight months. What the fuck? What do I know? Nothing, nothing. I know nothing. So all of the information coming about this coronavirus is just, it lingers there above my head. It's out of my grasp. Just controlling me, telling me what to do. Let scientists take over. Let doctors do their magic work. And I just have to let time pass. So I don't have any ability to dictate the flow of that news. And I'm watching less news lately. I'm still on Twitter, but I'm watching less news at night and just saying, all right, you know, I'll get the, I'll get the big headlines. I'll, I'll understand the big headlines, but I'm not going to watch an hour of news every night anymore. So in my head, I now get consumed with the small little things, little, little, even smaller than the things that used to consume me are now just floating around my mind. And my wife can see it. She could actually see in my eyes, my face, not listening to her. And it's totally unintentional. And I do feel bad, but I've been tuning my wife out because I'm thinking about mulch or stone steps or drought friendly plants. That's right. Landscaping takes over 73% of my thoughts throughout the day. Really? You think about coronavirus less than landscaping. And I say to you, imaginary conversation. I do. I do. Coronavirus is now less of a topic in my brain, in my distorted delusional brain, than landscaping our front yard. There's something about our front yard right now. That's just incomplete. And I need to put this puzzle together. Now the world right now is incomplete, but that's beyond me. But our landscaping, I'm like, huh, if I could get a few estimates by some guys to come over to the house and I'll stay indoors and we'll talk on the phone. See, it's still Six feet apart, social distancing. Is it essential? I don't know. Maybe for my sanity. I know landscaping is not essential right now. I get it. 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 But a lot of these guys don't mind when I call them, when I hunt them down on next door and say, hey, Luis, can I get some pictures? And they say, hey, great to hear from you, stranger, on my cell phone. And they send me pictures. This is now what I like to do throughout the day. I like to think, should we go with lavender next to some gray stones? Would that look good? And I think about it so much. That when I'm supposed to interact with others, I'm still thinking about landscaping that I now am not a great conversationalist. And my wife has realized this poor woman, poor woman. She lives with a man who's consumed with landscaping. And that's not the most exciting topic. Even right now, you're like, move on. Who gives a shit? But I'll tell you what, it is something I've never thought about in my whole life. I've been surrounded with homes and front yards and backyards and steps and plants and trees and walkways and all this stuff that doesn't matter until you actually are pursuing it for your own home. And then I notice every single home. I know I talked about this. Like if you're in the market for a new car, you start to notice cars on the highway. And if you're not, you don't care. If you want new running shoes, you start to notice everybody's running shoes. And if you're not in the market to buy running shoes, you don't notice. So now every single house I walk by, I run by, I drive by, I am meticulously analyzing everything. And for some weird reason, it takes over my thoughts more than the damn coronavirus. What does that say about me? Or maybe the human condition. Forget me for a moment, right? No more focusing on me, but just the human condition. When we get consumed with the littlest things, and I do, 
I think it's our way of saying, well, at least I can control this in a world where we can't control much. Oh, whoa. Should I bow right now? I feel like I actually made a point. I'm going to stand up, do a little self-applauding. Oh, should I slow clap? Poignant, eloquent, well-structured rhetoric. You beautiful gem. How do you do it? Also, my new thing throughout the day is I pretend I'm uh, the subject of a documentary. I pretend there's a camera crew around me just watching me live my life. And occasionally I do those one-on-one interviews and my wife has to watch. She goes, who are you talking to? Who are you talking to? And I'll be sitting on our kitchen chair describing the lunch I just made. Yeah, I get that a lot. People don't realize that the ratio of tuna to mayo is an important one. And when I do add the garlic salt, that's probably the point where some of my biggest fans would dispute my approach. But I got to keep pushing ahead because if I listen to my fans, then I'll be in the stands with them. And I can't do that. I have to rise above. And she's like, who are you talking to? But this documentary that's unfolding in my head, it's going to be good. Yeah, it's going to be good one day. That's my bucket list. That's it. I want to make a documentary one day, maybe a mockumentary. Who knows? Just something. And then uh, visit New Orleans. That's it. I've whittled it down. This pandemic has turned a lot of our dreams into minimal versions. It used to be like, I want to see Japan. And now it's like, I want to see San Leandro. It used to be, I want to go to the Cinque Terre region of Italy. And now it's, I hear there's a winery in Livermore. That'd be nice. They do a nice Pinot Noir. Noir? Noir? Peanut? Wine tasting sounds fun right now, doesn't it? Kind of? Just think of all those little things you can't do. Oh, yeah, the film teacher at the high school I work at, he, uh, he's going to be my collaborator for this documentary. You just wait. It's coming out in a couple of years. By the way, Steph Curry has produced a documentary about the first guy who ever turned the basketball shooting form into an overhand jump shot. So when Dr. James Naismith created the game of basketball, he cut out the bottom of a peach basket. People were all shooting Granny Goose underhand until Kenny Sailors went with a real over-the-top jump shot. This is the 1940s. He was from the sticks in Wyoming, led the University of Wyoming to a championship over Georgetown at Madison Square Garden, and Steph Curry is doing a documentary about that. Yes, folks, nonfiction is better than anything in the world of fiction. That's a fact. Kenny Sailors. I'd love to see footage of what the first jump shooter looked like and how perfect that Steph Curry, the greatest shooter of all time, is producing this doc. That's going to be good. That's going to be good. What are you watching right now? Dramas, comedies, dramedies, soap operas, horrors, cartoons, stand-up. What are you watching? Here's one thing I will point out, and I've meant to say this for a while now. Everything you've ever watched was written by a writer. Every movie you've ever watched, I'm going somewhere with this. Just stay with me. Every show, every movie, it's been written by somebody who's a professional screenwriter. They write TV shows or they write movies. And you know that. But too many fictional Hollywood TV show characters and movie characters are also writers. You're going to start noticing this, okay? I've been watching a lot of shows and movies lately. And it is uncanny. Un-motherfucking canny. How many characters in our shows and movies are also writers, whether they're journalists or critics or authors, magazine reporters. You'll notice this. 
It shows a lack of imagination. When writers write characters that are also writers, which is a crutch, I feel like I would do the same. If I wrote a book right now, it'd be easiest to write about a teacher or a radio host or somebody that does what I do. You find that. It's a disproportionate amount of writer characters in our fictional shows and movies. And it's kind of annoying now. You got this classic family setting. I, I should put together a list, a long list of the shows and movies I've seen that include characters who are writers. And you just go, okay, this is an extension of whatever was in the writer's head when they created this movie or show. It's too easy. And a lot of the times it works so well, so we don't even notice. Because who knows how to better create a character that's a writer than a writer. Think of some examples right now. I'm watching this show, Little Fires Everywhere, based on a book. Reese Witherspoon is playing a journalist. It doesn't really fit her character, but it's like just the profession. Also, another crutch for these screenwriters. Too many characters are smokers. It's not the world anymore. But I think Hollywood still likes to show us people smoking cigarettes. You never see vaping, which is the modern trend of people who like to inhale something that's going to kill them. But smokers? Still disproportionate amount of smokers in our movies and shows. And does it make me want one? Sometimes. Hey, Hollywood's powerful. Is there anything more influential than the fashion, the style of speech, the accomplishments, than these actors we fall in love with? No, you still see them, and they do it for dramatic purposes, you know? Give the actor something to hold. Give the actor something to hold in this scene. Yeah, make them a smoker. It's just so easy. I feel like too many writers are doing that. So the dad in this movie is going to be a smoke. Yeah. Yeah. And he'll be a writer too. Hey. So starting now, if you've never noticed this, you're going to now notice how many characters don't need to be smoking a cigarette in that scene, but they will be. And how many of them are writers? Lazy. Give me more movies about professions we have no clue about. Speaking of no clue about, do you know anything about Passover? Passover is a Jewish holiday. I feel the need to describe it, though, without any religion, without any historical context. I'm just going to describe a Seder for you, and you'll understand why it's always been my favorite holiday. Passover and New Year's Eve. I like these holidays. New Year's Eve, it's always a fresh start. I like resolutions. I like turning the page on a year and welcoming a fresh new year. But Passover, if you ask me, hey, hey, you sick son of a bitch, I'd say, why are you addressing me that way? But if you asked me, why is Passover your favorite holiday, I would explain. And I would explain it in a way that doesn't sound that Jewish, doesn't sound religious, but you would be fascinated with the things that happen. If I started by saying, well, Passover led to the first time I was drunk. Oh, how old were you? 18, 19? No, 10. 10? Yeah, I had too much wine at a Seder when I was 10. And there were adults at the table watching this happen and I'm pretty sure they were cool with it. Pretty sure they were entertained by it. Oh, it gets better. So Passover, let me just explain this for a second. It starts with a plate. And I'm going to mess a lot of this up, but you got an egg on the plate, horseradish on the plate, a lamb shank on the plate, some parsley, bitter herbs on the plate, maybe some haroset, which is, you know, that classic dish when you throw an apple in a blender with walnuts and cinnamon and some Manischewitz red wine. You know haroset. You're probably eating some right now. You know that old fun snack that kids stuff into their backpacks? No, no, you don't. Okay, this is the matzah holiday, which is the giant cracker. And what do we do with one of those crackers? We crack it in half and then hide it in our homes 
And then little kids who are attending the Seder, Seder means order. There's an order to this meal. Then they go around the house and look for it. It's like hide and go seek without a person. It's just the big cracker is hiding somewhere that the adult hit it. And whoever finds it gets paid. Okay. You talk about competition. I've seen some wild, wild cracker searching. I should just say Afi Komen. I know there's some Jews listening, but I'll say that big cracker, whoever finds it, everybody tears apart the house looking for a stash of treasure. Payouts could be anywhere from 10 to 20 bucks. It's not bad. It's not bad. Also, everybody at the table at some point just feels the need to test themselves with an insane amount of horseradish, which is the perfect amount of pain in the culinary world. See, I don't like the hottest of hot sauces or hot salsas. No thanks. That'll linger on my tongue. It'll hurt me. It'll hurt the toilet the next day. But my roar, you talk about horseradish, it hurts. It clears your sinuses. It makes your eyes water. It puts some pain in your face for six to seven seconds. And then it's gone. It's beautiful. It's gone. I don't care how old you are. You punish yourself with a little horseradish at every Seder. And then something called gefilte fish is served. What is it? It's not a fish. It's not. It's not a fish. It's a mixture of ground fishes that no one would eat on their own. Have you ever heard of pike? No. White fishes? Plenty of white fishes are in there. Carp? Sable? Have you ever heard of any of these? Of course you haven't. But if we just blend them all up, add some salt, and yeah, put them in a jar with jelly and serve that, we're going to eat that once a year. And we do it. Why? Is this fear factor? No, no, no. This is Passover. All the while, there's a book on your plate. And it's a guide to how you're going to progress through this meal. And every three pages, it says, drink a glass of wine and fill up another. I'm not kidding. Every three pages, every four pages. All right, sing a song. Now fill up a glass of wine. What are you, 10 years old? Give him a glass of wine. Apparently, when I was 10 years old, I knew a few Elvis songs and I was ready to perform for all the adults. That's okay. See, that's a nice story. May have disappointed my mom. May have needed to be put to sleep a little early back then in 1991. But hey, it's the old folklore that builds the fabric of our family tree. Na, 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 na. We dip our pinkies in that wine glass too. And we talk about things. Things like plagues. We dip our pinky in wine and then we put the droplets onto our plate. I didn't make this up. Did somebody on Magic Mushrooms make this up? Sure, I guess so. But I didn't make this up. Everybody around the dinner table just grumbling to themselves. Frogs. Locusts. Boils. What else? More boils. Flies. Fleas. Ticks. Coronavirus. Dip your pinky in the wine and make a little droplet on your plate. Why? Oh, I don't know. I'm not saying why discuss these things, but the traditions behind them. I don't know. I'm not getting into any of the religion. Just the facts, folks. Just the facts. And then you sing a lot of songs. You eat a lot of dessert. Macaroons. Probably the only time every year you eat a macaroon. And you ask yourself, wait, why don't I eat more macaroons? These are phenomenal. Same with matzo ball soup. Wait, why do I only eat this maybe twice a year? I should have matzo ball soup once a week. It's he, 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 And you can't get it at a restaurant properly made. That's something that has to be made with the love of an old Jewish woman. Or a young person. Or a young Jewish man. We're not profiling. But you know what I mean. So you want to come to my next Seder? Isn't it weird that the answer is, yeah, I'm in. Brisket, check. Lamb, check. Plenty of hard-boiled eggs and horseradish. 
big crackers, check, 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 check. Things are going to get weird. Oh, yeah. You're going to need an Uber to get home after nine glasses of wine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But we'll do it. We'll do it again in April. A lot of people had Zoom seders this year. Ugh. I mean, it's nice. It's nice. Everybody feels connected. But Zoom seders, come on. My ears are throbbing. They hurt. They hurt. Can we hang up on Grandpa Morris yet? All right. Here's how I want to end. What are you watching on TV? What am I watching? That's a great conversation with friends right now. Ooh, do you have any recommendations? How often does someone recommend something where you nod and go, ooh, I'll check that out. But deep down, you're like, no, I'm never checking that out. How many conversations have you had where someone like really enthusiastically describes what they're watching and you go, oh, wow, I should check that. You're not checking it out. You're not going to watch a minute of it. None of us take recommendations. We all just like discussing the shows we're watching. I'll recommend Little Fires Everywhere on Hulu to you right now. None of you are going to watch it. None. Yet. If you like comedy, you should probably check out Dave Chappelle's Mark Twain Award ceremony. It was really good. Dave Chappelle is fascinating to me. And here's why. Not just because he's a great comedian, but it's because he has only been a comedian. Zero other jobs, aspirations, endeavors. We're talking about a guy who had a calling. Like this is a real prodigy story, a real genius of comedy story when he was 14 years old 14 years old what grade is that freshman in high school he just made the decision i'm gonna be a stand-up comedian oh that's a job okay i'll do it and his mom was so supportive she would drive him all around washington dc and the club owners realized his talent at such a young age they would give him stage time and then a few years later when he's like 17 years old he starts winning comedy competitions i even read that the principal of his high school would let him go It was like, you know, if you have a famous ice skater or a golfer or you you think of any trade, any craft, any talent, any profession, where if you're young, like a child actor, then you just kind of fade away from the classroom and you get immersed into that field quickly in life. That was Dave Chappelle with comedy. Could you imagine going to a comedy club and seeing a 15-year-old high school student kill? So he's like 46 now. He's been a comedian for 32 years. So he wins this Mark Twain Award, this Humor Award, which is prestigious, started in 1998. The first recipient, Richard Pryor, of course. But like some big names. And then you watch the Dave Chappelle ceremony and you're like, oh, this is something serious. It's funny, but it's on Netflix, the Mark Twain Award. And you have these great speeches, like emotional speeches from people who have really been touched by his story. And when I say he's comfortable on stage, yeah, he knows no other realm. Of course he's comfortable. He's more comfortable on stage than he is anywhere. That's why he's known for these long sets. Like he used to come to the punchline in San Francisco and just stay on stage until 2.33 a.m. He's like, why would I stop this? They're still laughing. We're still engaging. Club owners are letting me smoke cigarettes. But a 14-year-old who's immediately good and becomes the best, that is once again why I'm not in the mood for fiction. I like real stories. Here's another real story. Louis C.K. put out a special on his own website, produced it, directed it, filmed it himself. What did he just set up a camera on a tripod, wrote the jokes, performed the jokes, and then collected every single cent. The credits, just Louis C.K. Oh, who produced it? Was it Amazon Prime? Was it Netflix? Was it HBO? No, Louis C.K. has given a middle finger to everybody and said, I don't need you if I just have my niche audience. Niche? 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 What are we saying? If I just have my supporters who are willing to pay eight bucks through my website and they could get my special during this quarantine, then that's all I want. 
So the Louis C.K. model is something that might actually become more popular. Now, I know he could have success with it, financial success, because he already has the fan base, and he lost a lot of fans as well for masturbating in front of women who did not want him to masturbate. That's the story. I'll just simplify it right there. If you're wondering, wait, where did he go? He got caught up in that Me Too movement where people said enough's enough to guys like him who masturbate in front of unwilling audience members. I don't really know how to word it, but he shouldn't have done that. There's my simple response. Definitely should not have done that. He should have done anything else. He talks about that in his special. Does that mean I've seen it? Does that mean I spent the eight bucks? Sure. And it opens up the bigger conversation. Can you still support somebody like that? If you disagree with them morally, you find them to be reprehensible. Can you still appreciate their art? Some people say no. Like my two friends that I was talking about this with, they're like, you're going to admit that you saw it. I was like, yeah, I don't lie about my comedy taste. Plus, you know, Louis C.K., a dominant comic. And a lot of his material is cringeworthy. It's dirty. It's heavy. It's weird. But it causes you to go, that's true. It's kind of true. There were moments watching the special. My wife was laughing too. I'll throw her under the bus. She was laughing. I had to turn away because I felt bad that I was laughing. Like there's this person inside all of us who knows when we shouldn't be laughing. And sometimes that fuels the laughter to reach higher levels of hysteria. So it was funny. And he jokes about everything. Things that I don't even talk about. I mean, really, things that make me uncomfortable. Here's a comic releasing his first special since his scandal. And he goes full throttle. It was like the most fearless performance of who gives a shit how you feel about me. I'm going to live my life this way. He doesn't care about death. He doesn't care about his reputation. He just understands that he has a gift. He is. He's a gifted comic. And he puts out this special for the people that are willing to spend eight bucks. I would love to know how much it has grossed. I'll probably never know how much Louis C.K. made from this. But the timing was obviously perfect. People are at home, ready for comedy. He addressed the big story, which is what people wanted. I always knew this would fuel his career in some way. But he's not like, you know, a felon. I think people would just question him now as a person, but they wouldn't say, put him in jail. Or maybe some people would. Seems like he did learn a lesson, though. And when he does discuss what happened, his weird sexual mistakes, it seems like he learned the lesson. All right, so people get second chances in life, third chances, fourth chances. Do people? I don't know. I guess it's up to the court of public opinion, but... The bigger question is, can you still appreciate art from people that you don't respect? I'll never forget having a conversation about the best running backs of all time with Nick Canepa. Good dude down in San Diego, longtime sports columnist. And Nick said, OJ Simpson, best running back I ever saw at USC with the Buffalo Bills, cup of coffee with the Niners, and Canepa said, I don't have any problem saying that. OJ Simpson was the best running back I've ever seen. A lot of people aren't saying that really on radio and TV. People are picking new running backs. But if you watch the film and you look at the stats and you understand OJ's impact on the football field, you go, okay, I guess that's a fact. Like, that's true still, but it's not really the OJ discussion. What about Michael Jackson's music? Does it still sound good to my ears? Yes. Do I think he's a pedophile, a criminal? Yes. Who's the greatest dancer of all time? The most innovative pioneer of the dance world? I think it's Michael. You watch that Billie Jean performance with his first moonwalk. It's riveting. It's captivating. Then you go, ah, should I be supporting this? Should I still be watching it? Like, it's an internal conversation. If you were to watch an episode of The Cosby Show right now, I don't think anybody is, but it would probably be really good. Let's be honest. It's one of the greatest sitcoms of all time. Some people have trouble with Woody Allen movies. I get that. 
Do I still watch them? Yeah, they're good. And now it makes me question myself. Why? Why am I still supporting these artists who are clearly shitty people in many ways? Criminals even. And the answer is perhaps I can compartmentalize those things, but some people can't. Some people just lump everything in together. The good and the bad combined. That's you. Whereas I think we're more complex than that. I guess ultimately, I don't want to go down this road too long, but the fact is a Louis C.K. special can still make me laugh. And if that is the result I'm going for, I can still judge the person and his mistakes and deem those to be awful misjudgments, just awful acts. But then if it's, you know what, I'm isolated. There's nothing to watch tonight. He put out a new special. I'm interested. And then it delivered. Special delivers. Then I go, all right, I guess I got to support the fact that he is a great comedian. Some people, I guess, don't even want to admit that, that they still support people who are just reprehensible. But there it is. Either I just gave you a comedy recommendation or now you'll stop listening to me. You go, damn you, Josh. We liked everything, but that Louis C.K. bullshit at the end. (laughs) Goodbye, sir. Goodbye. And I say goodbye to you. Episode 88 is now in the books. I'll talk to you soon.